0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another extremely exciting guest today. He is a legend of Icelandic chess. He has been six-time champion of Iceland, two-time champion of... Uh, two-time Nordic champion. Uh, he was... Uh, in the top dozen players in the world in the 1980s and perhaps most famously uh, beat Victor Korchnoi in the candidate cycle in 1988. And he's back to playing actively. He's joining us from London, actually, where he's part of the appeals committee of the Carlson Caruana match, which as we record, it is the rest day before the playoff. You guys will know the winner by the time you hear this. But in any event, it is my great honor to introduce my guest, Johan Hjottersson. So Johan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm glad to join your podcast.
0: So how's everything in London? We had this incredible drama yesterday, which uh, people already have been talking about a lot with uh, Magnus Carlsen agreeing to a draw about nine moves from time control with what most consider to be an edge in his position. Sitting there on the appeals committee, uh, to the extent that you're able to talk about uh, what the mood in the room was like, how what was your reaction?
1: Well, I think I... I was very surprised like the rest of the audience. Everyone thought uh, Black would play for a win without taking any risk really. And, and he was way ahead on the clock also. So it was came as a, as a, b- a big surprise, obviously. And...
0: S- as you're as you're on the appeals committee, could you let our listeners know a little bit what that's like? So you're basically there in case there's some sort of disagreement. Are you able to track the game with an engine and listen to commentary, or are you sort of sequestered?
1: No, we we are just can, can stroll around freely and 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 watch the game. So what the uh, appeals committee does is, if there is a dispute uh, and the arbiter has to make a a ruling and let let's say in the most extreme case forfeit a player or something then uh, that that player can appeal to the appeals committee and and we will then review the decision of of the arbiter
0: okay and luckily you you guys have not been pressed into duty in the the 12 games so far no right. yeah and do you mind I think you mentioned in an email to me but who else is serving on the committee with you
1: so the chairman is is the, Alexander Paliyevsky, the famous uh, Ukrainian grandmaster who was the four time Soviet champion back in the old days, and and Nigel Short, uh, the the legendary English grandmaster.
0: Yes, a st- strong committee.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, so you walk around and you follow the um, you follow the action and get to catch up, I'm sure, with some old friends. So what has been? Aside from yesterday's drama, which again, we'll have plenty of time in intervening uh, weeks and years, and I think we'll be able to put it in better context after the Rapid Playoff. But what's what's been your overall impression of the conditions of the match uh, and the play of the match?
1: Well, uh, in spite of all the draws, I mean, there have been many exciting games. And, and in particular, uh, I mean, the first game was very promising, obviously. The world champion was completely winning so we kind of people were expecting that this might be the match where the blood would be sputtering all over the place but that didn't happen and and then later on uh, uh, like around the middle of the match uh, Caruana obviously had uh, a very promising game I mean okay this this ending where the computers found this Inhuman human win, you can't blame him for not seeing that. But then I think it was the eighth game. He obviously had a very nice nice position. So the world champion has been struggling a bit and, and um, uh, gives the impression of maybe being a, a bit nervous. Also in the games where he, he had the edge, he was a bit like an impatient, you know, would force things. Quickly, so they would pattern into a, a draw. So, but these are really tough matches. Obviously, the last one against Kariakin in New York, New York, was there. He was struggling as well, but as we know, he is just a a fantastic defender. And 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 probably his strategy for the second part of the match has to be has to go into the playoffs and for the games with the shorter controls, where he is considered to be even having even more advantage over his uh, the best players in the world than in the normal time control?
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in yesterday's game, of course, he kind of ended up with rapid conditions. I mean, especially as you mentioned, he had a time advantage on Fabiano Caruana um, and a, a position that by no indications was worse. But I guess there's, it seems like maybe he's pressing a little bit just due to the the fact that he has so little room for error in this twelve-game match, especially as it gets toward the later stage of the match, where tomorrow I think I'm guessing he feels like if he gets a small edge in one of the first couple games, he can push a little bit more. But I mean, it's interesting that he had that he had the time edge, an even greater time edge than he would want yesterday, but just didn't wasn't ready to push.
1: Yes, that's probably right. He was just. Uh... Had been set on 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 just securing a draw with a minimum risk and and oftentimes and maybe somewhat lacking in 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 in, uh, in self control I, I don't know so he was maybe following a plan to to draw this game and yeah you can understand that and obviously uh, in the last World Championship match he won in the playoffs so. You know he has a good experience with that as well, so that may be affecting his decision decision making yesterday.
0: Okay. And uh, in in your years in the chess world, have you attended other world championship matches?
1: Oh yes, the the first one obviously was the, the match of the century in 1972 when I was only nine years old. I went to see one of the games at that time, and then later on, uh, at least one of the Karpov, Kasparov matches, also uh, Kasparov-Kramnik in London, whenever that was. So, yeah, I've seen it. And and, and these were obviously longer matches That this was when we were back in, what, 24 games. So it's different now. Uh, Less room for error, obviously.
0: I'm excited to announce that this week's episode of Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by... Chessable. If you're a regular listener to Perpetual Chess, you've probably heard me and our esteemed guests extol the virtues of Chessable even when they were not our sponsors. Chessable uses learning science to help you improve your chess as efficiently as possible. It's a great way to remember more ideas faster, even for a middle-aged dad like me. What's more, they're an open platform where anyone can publish their courses. I'm talking to you chess teachers and coaches, and they paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars in commissions to their partner authors. They have big plans for 2019, so if you're a student, author, or coach, be sure to check out chessable.com. So do you feel, obviously, everyone's talking about people's nerves and there's the, the heightened tension, um, you, you know, you can see it in... For example, uh, Olympia Khan on Twitter posted a picture of the photographers taking pictures of Magnus Carlsen, where there's like 10 photographers uh, swarming basically around him in the first five minutes when they're allowed to take pictures like that. And that really gives, you, gives me a sense of what it must be like. So what I'm wondering as someone who has so much experience attending world championship matches is, do you feel an increased tension in uh, observing this match or is it just standard for for a match of this magnitude?
1: Well, I think the pressure has clearly been increasing as as the match progresses with all these draws. And, you know, uh, there is absolutely no room for error, as you pointed out earlier. So like in, in the last game, so, which may affect the decision of, of, of Magnus. But obviously these are always extremely tense affairs uh, and I, I remember even as a nine-year-old feeling the, 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 the pressure and the tension hmm. in Reykjavik in 1972. So I think it's just something that goes with these events.
0: And were you already a chess player at that point?
1: Yes, I I was uh, quite interested in, in, in chess at the time. But I think uh, obviously that uh, interest increased uh, after the match. And like my generation of chess players, we were basically spawn out of the 1972 match. And you you grew up in Reykjavik,
0: correct? I did, yes. So how common... I mean, I, I went to one Reykjavik Open, uh, and I got the sense, and this was about uh, 12 years ago, and I got the sense that chess was even then... Uh, much bigger part of the culture than in other cities I had visited. What was it like as a kid? Were there just chess tournaments everywhere? Was there after, in the sort of shadow or subsequent to the match of the century? was How popular was chess in sort of everyday life?
1: Yeah, chess became uh, very popular, should I say, in the late 50s in Iceland. This is because... Of the efforts of of uh, Frédrik Olason, uh, the first Icelandic grandmaster who is still with us and in good health, uh, he's 83 years old now. I mean, he sort of grew out of nothing. I mean, uh, at the age of 23, he played in the international uh, in in uh, in Portorož, Slovenia, and and qualified to the Candidates tournament. So that created enormous interest in, in chess that has, has kind of uh, been the case to this day.
0: Yeah, Iceland famously has over time, I don't know if it's still number one in terms of the most grandmasters per capita, but it certainly has been there at that time. And I'm sure even now. With uh, Icelandic chess players uh, not quite being at the peak of their powers, it's still an extremely strong chess country relative to its uh, small population.
1: Yes, you can say that we are very good in everything if you take the per capita, but unfortunately we have not had any real top players in in the last kind of 20 decades after my generation uh, retired from tournament chess. I, I... I, I, I left tournament, uh, professional chess uh, over 20 years ago and, and obviously that has not been good and so there, you I think you can safely say that there is somewhat less interest than it used to be uh, 20 years and, and going back unfortunately because it's necessary to have top players to arouse the interest in chess in general and, and among the younger upcoming generation of chess players.
0: Yes, and for listeners, I forgot to mention in the introduction that uh, Johan is now the general counsel of Decode Gen- Genetics. So I would I would like to talk to that talk about that in due time about your decision to uh, to become to uh, begin practicing law in lieu of pursuing chess as a profession. Uh, although again, you're you're competing again right now. But first, let's let's talk a little bit more about the uh, Icelandic chess scene. So. Do you have a theory as to to why there aren't players quite on the same level as when you were at your peak?
1: I think it has something to do with the fact that it is obviously very, very difficult to make a decent living as a professional chess player nowadays. There is just so much competition, and and this changed, you know, I think, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and, and everything opened up, but then you had all these very strong chess players from Eastern Europe Europe competing and there's much more competition. So uh, to select professional chess as as your career is obviously a a big decision that is certainly not going to make you a, a wealthy person unless you are among the very top. So I think that has... Something to do with it, and it's obviously a bit difficult to be a professional chess player in Iceland because you you can't just just jump on the next train for an hour and a half to pl- compete in a tournament. you always have to travel and even though traveling has become cheaper in the last few few years it's, it's still a, a bit of a disadvantage to to live in Iceland
0: right and another factor is the cost of living in in iceland is uh known to be high so yes. the, pro- the prizes are the same uh wherever you go but the the money doesn't take you as far when you bring it back home um yeah so do you feel like there have been scholastic talents that could have risen to a higher level but the the practical considerations of uh, pursuing chess um at some point either held them back or turned them away
1: yes uh, i think so i i actually can't uh, think of any specific instances of, of someone not pursuing a chess career who was clearly very very talented but i I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that is the, the case to a certain extent
0: okay and when when you yourself i know that that you have at least one child because i I'd, I'd like to s- send thanks to your son uh ingvi mm-hmm. johansen i hope i I hope, I'm sure I mispronounced it, um, but I, I want to thank him for reaching out to to you and to me and helping coordinate that interview. Um, it's a it's a great honor for me. Um, so I know that you have a family. So was it a fraught decision for you when you decided to pursue a different career, or did it just feel like a, a natural chain of events?
1: Yes, I would I would think so. Uh, I. I had studied law so I had a degree so I I, I could do something else and now and I was about uh, almost 35 years old and sort of uh, it was at the time to take a decision because you can't maybe pursue a legal career if you're too old and I also I was getting a bit tired of, of the traveling so um, yeah I thought it was a maybe a, a good moment I I, I I was kind of happy. I quit on the top. I, I, I had, I think I had the highest rating I had ever had. I, I also have seen, which is a bit sad, maybe professional chess players declining in strength as, as they get older and having nothing else to turn to. So it, it was not a difficult decision at the time. Interesting.
0: And I, I gather with, it's not a, it's a decision you're happy with to this day.
1: Yes, I I would say say so. I was able to build a very interesting career and doing something something new and and I mean chess is a great hobby. Uh, even though you don't play as a professional, you you clearly can play as an amateur uh, like I'm doing nowadays and enjoying a lot.
0: Yes, and quite a strong amateur. In in 2016, you you won your country's uh, national championship yet again.
1: Yes, I it, well obviously when I started playing again I, my my rating dropped you know like 100 points which was to be expected but it has been uh, kind of okay. Yeah, I was r- really rusty in the in the beginning when I I sort of didn't play regular tournament chess for almost yeah 15 years and then I started again back in 2015 and and it took a like a year to sort of uh, get back on on track, but uh, uh, succeeded eventually. And obviously, I'm not playing. Right. <laughs> I'm not on the same level as when I was a professional. But I mean, you can, everyone can enjoy chess in, in their own own way. I mean, there are so many different ways. You can play. You can study. Uh, do whatever. So what did the first
0: tournament back in 2015, what did it feel like when you sat down at the board?
1: Well, it was a bit depressing and difficult. This was the Icelandic uh, Championship, if I remember correctly, when I finished like in the lower half of the players. And, and, uh, and I, well, sometimes you feel like you have suffered some kind of brain damage or, or something. <laughs> but... but uh, no, I didn't stop, and and actually, I was able to win the Icelandic champion the following ship the following year. So, you know, I got quickly back on track.
0: And when you when you did play in that first event, uh, how how long had you been planning your comeback, and how much preparation had you had you done for? It?
1: Well, it was kind of a coincidence that I I started again because um, uh, it was around the the European Team Championship, which was held in Iceland in 2016, if I remember correctly. And sort of the hosting country can have an extra team. And someone tossed out the idea that it would be fun if there would be like an old boys team. Uh, So we decided to form a team, myself and my three... Colleagues Helgi Olason, Marke Pieterson, Jónel Árnason, uh, who formed the core of the Olympic team in the old days, and together with our legend Friedrich Olason, so we formed this team. And I knew this well in advance. And I started kind of studying again. And and when that tournament was over, I just kind of said to myself, "Why don't you just uh, continue?" and 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 so I did. So I've been playing like a uh, maybe four tournaments a year. I also made a deal with my boss at work that I could take some extra time off to play chess in, in lieu of a sabbatical. So then it's how it started.
0: Yeah, and I, I gather your kids are probably um, uh, a little bit older. I mean, I know the son that emailed me is is grown up at this point, so I'm guessing yeah. that helped a bit.
1: Yes, it did. Uh, my son is now already 31 and my daughter is 25 and both of them have moved out. So obviously, yeah, there is less sort of domestic responsibilities.
0: Yeah, the, that certainly helps. Um, OK, so I have my, my we've got a as I mentioned before we were recording, we've got a few uh, enthusiastic questions from. Uh, supporters of the podcast. The first one is from a friend and supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott, who's also a chess reporter and was quite excited to hear that you would be doing an interview for Perpetual Chess. And so some of this we just touched on, but I'll just read his whole question. Uh, Chris asks, it's quite common in the chess world for people to stop playing a lot of chess once they get old enough to have real responsibilities such as a job, family, etc. Of course, quite a few then come back to the game down the road. However, it doesn't seem to be that common for a grandmaster to quit and return. Although you never completely stopped playing, you did certainly reduce your schedule to only a handful of games here, here and there. Uh, then you came back on a on a more regular basis so two questions from that first what changed to make you decide to begin playing chess regularly again and secondly what has changed in your approach as a player over the age of 50 as compared to the 25 year old who once vanquished Korchnoi in a candidates match in other words how do you play prepare and study then as compared to now or now as compared to then yeah
1: yeah well um yeah, I think we touched on the f- on the yeah. f- first question. It was uh, maybe a bit of a coincidence that I, I I started again and and yeah, and I guess maybe I had some more time on my hands. I had a uh, a, a job that was and still have that is very demanding, but it it changed in a way when when Decode, the company where I work at, was acquired by the big U.S. multinational. Amgen, um, the biggest independent pharmaceutical company in the world and maybe things became a little more predictable and, and, and also my my boss has been very accommodating and allowing me so, some extra time. So that's kind of happened. I mean well, I'm I'm what, fifty five years old now and you have to start thinking about what you want to do in your old age and, and chess is certainly a, a very good good hobby and pastime and, and rewarding so that's maybe yeah what I was thinking about it would be nice to be able to play tournament chess in the, in the future and, and if you've been retired for a long time you, you can't stay out of the game too, too long and that's it. Yeah, regarding preparation obviously when I left uh, professional chess the uh, we already had the, the the data bases and and the computers but like the chess playing programs were already very weak at the time so maybe what has changed now is that the information is more accessible I mean everyone is using the engines uh, I, I do that as well and so preparation is is uh, different and and you know the more information you have it's it's even a harder work so that is probably what has changed and and i would think that you would need uh different maybe somewhat different qualities to be a top player nowadays than say 20 years ago i mean obviously it's more about being able to use the various it tools effectively database uh, Chess programs and everything probably memory is also more important to be able to memorize long forced lines. So I think you need maybe different qualities. But I, I obviously, I'm, I'm not very IT savvy, so I try to use these tools as everyone else does. So the preparation, obviously, yes, has has changed somewhat. So, so I'm, do you think that
0: those changes are good or bad? For chess or do you relatively neutral what, what do you think
1: well I think uh, they are good for the most part one thing being uh, everyone now at this has the same access to information so everyone is equal you may recall in the old days when when the news would not travel as fast obviously the Soviet place with seconds and everything uh, they had a, a, had an advantage and and you can also, I enjoy chess enormously using these tools. I mean, they, you discover a whole new world. For instance, one thing I noticed quick, quickly is that most positions are, are much more tactical than you, than you expect. And they're not <clears throat> because these engines uh, see the tactics very cl- clearly so uh, but maybe the downside is perhaps that the ch- chess theory has become so enormous and the and the top players make fewer mistakes so so the percentage of of draws is is high higher maybe like in these top tournaments and like in this match in, in London some people see that as a as a disadvantage with the computers and all but um, Everything this has its pros and, and cons, but obviously it's more interesting, I think, to analyze chess nowadays than it used to be.
0: And I can't help but ask, uh, following up on, on that thought, do you think that the current format for the World Championship is, is a good one? Do you feel that it's
1: a format that's working? Um, I'm not quite sure. I've been discussing this with... Uh, People here in London, and 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 one common opinion is that these matches may be a little bit too small. Obviously, yeah, it's too too too, too short. Sorry, it's. Uh, I mean, every, nowadays everything goes is is faster than it used to be, and like a, maybe a a twenty four game match would be too long, but sort of a sixteen games would be a some kind of middle ground that many have talked about, and you maybe the players could take somewhat more risk. And if you lose a game, then then you are not completely out. Like for instance, in a match like this, this is tight. If you lose the the eleventh game or something, it's extremely difficult. This is why the players are so cautious. So maybe this is something that could be done.
0: Yeah, I think 16 games would be better. I understand when people say that 24 games in this day and age is just not feasible, but 12 games is so short. I mean, I really feel like once you get to the back half of the match, you can as as we were discussing earlier, you can really see Carlson with the, in particular with the rapid sort of in his sights, uh, and it it changes the the psychology and the entertainment factor of the match. And you know, Carlson's job is to win the world championship. But if we're putting this forth as a product uh, that should entertain people, then I think we need to give some thought to how to make it more entertaining. And I don't know if you've, I mean, you've probably heard this idea before. Vladimir Kramnik uh, popped into the St. Louis chess broadcast yesterday with uh, Jen Shahadi, Yasser Sarawan, and Maurice Ashley, and he was commenting on the game. And, of course, he had a lot of interesting things to say. But one of them was he echoed the idea that that maybe the tiebreak should be played before the match is played uh, so that uh, there's no tie after the 12th game if you have a ticket to the 12th game and the match is close you're going to see uh, you're gonna see players fight to the end uh, wh- what do you think of this suggestion
1: well I, I must admit I have never heard it before not giving given it a thought I I think it's a, certainly a, a very interesting idea and maybe one Other idea I I was thinking about uh, that would also be maybe could be applicable to top chess tournaments that you would not start with the initial position, maybe you could select like 100 positions uh, after two or three moves. So, basically, in every opening, so play the players would have to just (laughs) couldn't count on, on theory as much. So, this is something I I I was thinking about, but obviously uh, that should be tried out in tournament chess before. I'm not suggesting that would be something you would do for the next match, but I thought it it would be an interesting idea because one of the things maybe that (laughs) uh, making this a bit boring, if you like, is if you see the same opening over and over again and the players trying to improve with very small nuances that are not likely to <laughs> give a, <clears throat> grant them a big success except in exceptional cases i mean this is one idea
0: yeah and i think that there's tons of good ideas i mean my friend greg shahadi has a lot of sort of radical ideas relating to time control but what i liked about uh vladimir kramnik's suggestion is that to me it's a uh, It's small enough that I could see it happening. Um, I think there's a lot of room for for large improvements and possibly uh, drastic changes. But I think realistically, the way these things develop, uh, it might be better to start with something small and see how it works. And I could see playing the tiebreak in advance might fall into that category because then you still have a classical chess match. You still have the original starting position, but at least you don't have players, uh, at least both players, steering towards a playoff uh, at a given point. But... Anyway, again, there's going to be so much time to dissect this match, and I only have you for a limited amount of time, so I want to talk more about your own experiences. Um, so another question from a friend and supporter of the podcast, Brian Karen. Um, this uh, dovetails with what you were talking about with uh, using computers and the, the adjustments you, you have had to make. So Brian asks... As a player who peaked right before computers became strong enough to change everything, what are your thoughts of these changes? Did it shorten the career of players from your generation who refused to adapt? For example, Karpov, did early implementers of this technology such as Kamsky and Kasparov benefit more than is commonly
1: acknowledged? No, I I I, I don't think, think so. I don't think these these tools uh, made any radical changes to People's careers, one or the one way or the other. I think there were maybe other things that have gone against kind of older player. It's it's the fact that nowadays there are faster time controls and no no rest days usually in, in tournaments. So quite often you will see the older player make mistakes around move forty and and things like that. So I think that is. A much more important factor, if you are looking for something that has been against uh, the the older generation, and I think many of them adopted really well to this uh, these advan- advances in in technology. Le- see, like for instance, Gelfand, who is who is not much <laughs> younger than myself, he he is always really really well prepared and. And Karpov, I think he he just had won, <laughs> done everything he, he wanted to do in chess and, and was interested in other things. This is why he's kind of withdrew from, you know, hardcore tournament chess. So, yeah, and, and Kamski, this was also, yeah, very interesting. Uh, when he came out of retirement and was able to, Built a, a very successful career again, and and okay, he is a one of the biggest fighters around, and and likes long endings and stuff like that, and so he must be in in good physical shape, I'm sure.
0: And for yourself, when when you came back to chess, you mentioned that you you're not particularly it savvy, but you did, you know, you've you've managed to make it work for you. What about in terms of uh? Like a- actual training, so there's the opening preparation, but in terms of uh calculation work or game review, um how much are you utilizing computers to the extent that you're that you're doing that stuff these days? How much do you utilize
1: computers? Uh, m- maybe not that much uh, apart from opening preparation and and preparing against a certain opponent. I still like to do things the the old way i I really like chess books, good chess books, which have, I think, grown better, obviously, nowadays. I mean, when everything's just checked with computers. and So, for, for instance, sometimes when I I order 20 chess books online and I'm, I'm filling the house with chess books, my wife doesn't like that <laughs> very much, so I sometimes have them. Uh, I hope she will not be listening to this <laughs> right. shit to to work, and, and I take... One, one, and or two books in my gym back home at, at the <laughs> time, you know. But so I, I still like chess books, and I, I'm told, uh, for instance, by my friends at New and Chess, who are this uh, internet chess bookstore that uh, they are in general selling quite well, which uh, I'm very, very pleased to hear. So uh, I, I still like to touch, touch the pieces. Yeah, and not only look at a computer screen every every now and then. Yeah, as you know, you know, there's so much information that things that you know go quickly by on a computer screen, you may not memorize them as well as if you're like studying an endgame position on a on a wooden board.
0: Yeah, and there's yeah, and it just feels different i mean there's something yep. there's there's a sensory experience when you're using a board in a book that that you don't get on a computer uh since you mentioned chess books of course i have to go down the rabbit hole of asking your your favorite books i mean it's such a broad topic so it can be something that made an impression on you in recent years or something that you consider uh sort of most seminal in your own development as a chess player
1: well <laughs> it is a a really difficult question there are so many uh, good books uh, but i'm a bit old fashioned for uh, maybe if i would mention one uh, uh, a favorite czech chess book from former times that was the, uh, the the book on the candidates tournament in in blad zagreb in 1959 where friedrich olson played which i think was written by glickorys and uh, and someone else uh, that, that in german actually this this is a, one of my favorite and 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 maybe in general uh, uh, books on on great tournaments I, I like like them a lot and also uh, game collections on of, of famous players much much more so than openings books say i think they are usually uh, forgotten right quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm glad that you didn't, all due respect to Zurich 1953, but we've had many, many guests mention it. So when when you mentioned the candidates tournament, I'm glad that
1: you went in a different direction. This is actually the 1959. uh, Right, uh yeah. No, uh, the f- 1953, obviously, was really a, a great book as well. No,
0: true. no, I'm saying I'm glad that... It, I was just yeah. saying I'm glad that you mentioned something different because uh, yes. I know that that's a great book, but uh, it's good to get different recommendations. Uh, we've had yeah. 1953 recommended many times. So speaking of games collections, are there any that come to mind uh, as, as your ultimate favorites? Well, uh, I
1: have to mention the <laughs> book... Uh, with the 50 uh, attacking games of Olason, Olafsson, our, my old idol and, and friend, which uh, he published, uh, but has only been published in Icelandic, sort of attacking games. This, of course, was my favorite as I was growing up, and, and still is. I mean, Olafsson was a very, very original player, attacking player, and, And, uh, well, for instance, uh, his performance in 1958 when he was only 23 years old, when he was, you know, better basically against all the strongest players and and he would have won the tournament if he hadn't lost some points to to the players and the the lower ranked players. So this is my favorite. And maybe I could also mention... um, uh, the collection uh, book on, on Rubenstein, Akiba Rubenstein, who was uh, really a favorite player of mine. I think it was written by Kmoch, if I'm not to pronounce that correctly, uh, which made a huge impression on me.
0: Okay, great. These are original suggestions. So what is it about Rubenstein's uh, style that appealed to you? uh
1: his technique was absolutely outstanding for for his time, and also many innovations in the opening, and he was like a highly modern player, I I, I would say, and and I learned a lot from, particularly I would say, in the end endings. He was just a a really displaying twenty first century technique back in these old days.
0: Wow, that's a strong recommendation. So. And do you feel like a, a book like that, do you feel like it's geared for a particular level of player? Like, do you have to be candidate master level to appreciate it? Or can uh, any player of any level uh, benefit from it?
1: I think any player can, can do. And and uh, oftentimes with these, uh, you know, old masters, they were maybe playing against weaker players. And, and, you know, it's easy to spot many mistakes, but he was just so flawless in the execution of... Of the end games, for instance. That so I think, just anyone can learn from him. And I, I, if I remember correctly, I think Kramnik maybe was it Kramnik who mentioned him specifically as one of his favorites.
0: Interesting. Uh, Strong recommendations then, listeners, so you guys uh, might want to check that out. So, uh, Johan, I have another question from a new supporter of the podcast, uh, Daniel Gould. Daniel, I hope I said that right, and thank you for the support, Daniel. So Daniel says, Hi, Mr. Kjartusen, I'm working on a blog series based on chess.com's perspective on the greatest games of all time. One reader pointed out a skepticism of this list because there was only one pre-war game, um, I assume it's the opera game and the reader insists it was prearranged. All that to say, do you have any suggestions for the listeners on great games to study that were played a long time ago? I assume in the territory of pre-19th century, though I'm not 100% sure what pre-war means.
1: Uh,
0: Putting on the spot here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I need. I would need more time to, uh, to make a, an intelligent proposal in this regard. I... I'm I'm afraid, but
0: uh, what about a favorite game generally? Uh, b- both from yourself or just generally, do you have uh, any that come to mind as uh, most treasured?
1: Yeah, I maybe maybe some games of of the match of the century, 1972. Uh, uh, the game that the long game that Bobby Fischer. One in the Alekhine's defense, wasn't it the thirteenth game? If I remember correctly, this was just a, a, an amazing game that is still kind of a, an enigma for for everybody. I mean, you can uh, analyze it with computers, and still you will always discover something new. I mean, this was quite just just amazing, and how and the the the, the chess of Bobby Fischer, obviously in in his last years of competitive chess in the early 70s are just amazing because he had such an overwhelming <laughs> uh, uh, control over his contemporaries and it's not going to be repeated obviously
0: yeah and in fact checking that it looks like it, it was uh, game 13 uh and what about of your own games do you have a particular favorite
1: Yes, I would say, uh, as I have s- s- said before, it, it was the first game of the match against Kostma in the Open, Ruy Lopez, where I was able as a, almost to, uh, just to refute his favorite variation. Uh, that was a rare example of me <laughs> with mm. superior opening preparation to, to the opponent, because I would not say that openings were ever my my strongest side, but that that was a, a very memorable game and and obviously had big impact on the match because it showed that him that I was a serious opponent, I guess.
0: And uh, did you? So I'm. I apologize for for my ignorance, but I don't know the details of of that particular game. So did you have a novelty that you sprung on him, um, or did you just sort of? know the position better or could you tell yes, us a little bit was, more?
1: it was really a novelty when I played B4 actually it had been played in one game before between I think it was Balashov and, and Portis which uh, was a quick draw and, and nobody paid any particular attention to that game so in that position all the moves were much much more common and and I and <laughs> When you look at it at the hindsight, I mean, there is just no really good uh, continuation for, for Black. So, and then I was able to uh, get a very strong attack quickly, and so I, I almost won this game with pure, pure preparation. So, uh, and yeah, and it had uh, this impact on on the chess theory that is this favorite variation of his to play bishop e7, queen d7, rook d8 very quickly. It kind of disappeared from tournament practice.
0: That's quite an impact. And did uh, did the legendary GM have any sort of reaction after either that game or, of course, uh, when you ultimately won the match?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you heard the stories. He was really <laughs> using all the tricks from the... <laughs> from the Soviet chess manual uh, <laughs> <laughs> to distract me and uh, and so to the extent that we even had to lots of complaint against this kind of behavior this was when you could still smoke mm-hmm. during chess tournaments so it was blowing smoke into into my face and trying to kind of disturb me, stand in front of the board and, and move rapidly and, and trample on the loose states so it would vibrate and so he he would use every trick in the book, and he was actually really really annoyed after the match. He is not one to. to he's yeah. he a rather bad loser, and and that even grew worse as he as he got older. And you know you may must have heard many stories of him.
0: Yes, of course. Yeah, and so. ha, ha, had you trained like Bafanik with people blowing smoke in your face?
1: <laughs> I... I <laughs> I didn't do that, but actually I had good training for my junior years because in the all in the chess clubs everywhere in the world, I guess, you know, the the, the players, the smokers were smoking excessively. So uh, it, it, that actually didn't bother me much, but it, it bothered me much more the way he was trying to distract me during the games. So...
0: So, can you think of e- either something else that, that GM Korchnoi was doing, or you mentioned the the Soviet <laughs> the Soviet manual quote unquote of uh sort of dirty tricks? So, what what are some other examples of uh tricks that would be pulled?
1: I don't know. It's somehow uh, trying to disturb the op- opponent somehow during the games, and 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 obviously in matches, you 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 may recall the Karpov Korchnoi matches, and they were using all sorts of psychological warfare. Many <laughs> the stories from the 1978 match between Kostner and Karpo in the Philippines obviously comes, comes to mind. So these, these were the, the days. And, and perhaps also, uh, you know, when you were playing with fixed time controls, then there was much more room for all, all sorts of uh, bad behavior, I suppose. I would say that nowadays, uh, I think chess players are behaving much better than they used to do, and probably the the uh, the increment uh, has also maybe diminished uh, uh, possibilities for for disagreement, and and I guess also reputation is more important now than with all these competitions. I mean, people. Players who get a bad name for bad behavior, they don't get invited to tournaments or sort of. So yeah, and there's cameras these, everywhere. Yeah, cameras. So these things have definitely changed for the better. And I, in my own uh, recent experience, I can't, I can hardly think of any any instance where I had the feeling that my opponent was trying to disturb me or annoy me on purpose.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that things have moved in the right direction. Um so tell us more about this this famous match with Korchnoi. So you you mentioned that I mean we know the result uh we know it's a crowning achievement for for your career as it would be for basically anyone's chess career. Uh going into the match, how did you feel about your own chances?
1: Well, I was kind of optimistic. I I thought I had a a chance. I had actually beaten Victor uh, the year before in Reykjavik 1987, where I was worse from the opening, but kind of defended well and tricked him in a time trouble. So I already knew at that point that I, I could beat him. I had done that once before. So I was not that... Yeah, I was rather optimistic and then obviously the match started very well for me I won the first game and and then also the fourth game where I had almost a lost position but was able to trick him in the time trouble but then came the disaster I lost uh, game five and six so the match was tight after six games and then we had to play two additional games so in the seventh game I was white and I, I took the advice of I think I heard from Kaspar or others that if you suffer a, a, a heavy defeat, it's a good strategy just to make a draw, uh, just to sort of to regain your self-confidence. So, so I did. It was a, actually I was pressing him qu- quite a bit in the seventh game, and then came the eighth and the last game, where sort of him he, he made a, a, a blunder in the in the middle game, and 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 also was very short of time, and eventually lost on, lost on time uh, in a in a lost position before the time control
0: just just incredible and did you, so you, we talked about nerves in the the world championship match did was that the most nervous you've ever been i mean what, we i'd also of course like to talk about your subsequent candidates match with Karpov but was that general time period the most pressure you felt as a chess professional
1: yeah, it's interesting to play a match. It's a completely different experience from from uh, playing a regular tournament chess. Even though you have st- stressful moments there, I mean, it's 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 a different kind of preparation. And obviously, also playing against Kostner is, a, <laughs> I think, always a stressful affair because he just, you know, <laughs> he is out there to to uh, to kill you by any <laughs> means, you know. Right. Like, for instance, you may recall the book published uh, a few years ago by Averbach. This very interesting book where he kind of, kind of categorized plays into like five categories. And one cat- category was killers. Mm-hmm. And I think he put uh, Kortsnoy and, and Fischer in, in, in these categories. And then there were other like, uh, what would they call them, explorers or artists. I don't remember, for instance, Boris Baski, I think he was an artist. Sounds <laughs> In right. In our definition, it was quite interesting uh, categorization of chess players.
0: Yeah, that that is interesting, and he was definitely had the reputation of a street fighter for for sure. Um, so, moving forward on the timeline, once you did win this match, then uh, and just to give listeners some perspective. Uh, it looks like, uh, was about number five in the world at 2640 around this time. And you were 2590, about 25th in the world, which obviously, uh, you, you guys are all elite players. So of course you had a chance, but I mean, I mean, (laughs) you proved you had a chance, but, uh, still what would be perceived as a, a, a sort of wide gap in terms of ranking. And then the gap gets even wider because, uh, 80 ELO points higher sits Anatoly Karpov. So uh, what were your thoughts coming into that match?
1: Well, I must admit I was uh, more pessimistic than <laughs> before the match against Kostnoi. And, and uh, I I really didn't stand much chance in that match. I, I lost the second game and, and kind of my opening preparation didn't work out as well against Kostnoi. He had obviously this enormous uh, experience in his matches with with Kasparo, so it was unfortunately a, a bit of a one-sided affair. I I, I don't know. Uh, I didn't feel as good as against Kostner. Maybe less self-confidence or or, or something. So I didn't stand a much chance in that match. Unfortunately. And-
0: yeah. And I guess you would have run into him sooner or later, but it might have been nice if you didn't have to play him in the, what was it, the quarterfinals?
1: Yes. It was a quarterfinals.
0: Yeah. So it would have been nice to dodge him a little bit and, uh, <laughs> move a little bit deeper, but sooner or later he would have been standing there. And what was his, uh, I mean, I guess it's different circumstances since he, he took control of the match early, as you say, but what was his disposition like? Uh, and, and where, were there any tricks involved in, in that match?
1: Oh, oh, no, no, no. i I actually played against Carpo many times in, in tournament as well. And, I, I mean, he is perfectly, uh, you know, uh, correct uh, at the chessboard. Uh, no complaints there. Yeah. And Korsnoy, obviously, most of the time it was, you know, quite okay. It Just, you know, when we had his back against the wall, like in some of these matches, he, he would use all, all the tricks. But, I mean, Carpo is completely... Correct player and and a person and and you know I was and I, obviously I got to know him quite quite well and we are even on good good terms and greet each other warmly whenever we meet so that was just a very pleasurable experience for the most part to <laughs> to get to know him and play against him for the most part I mean that obviously he would win. Win, uh, you know, like every other game or something.
0: Yeah, <laughs> understandably. And did you get to, I mean, I'm sure you have at some point, but did you, during the course of the candidates match, did you guys ever do postmortems?
1: Uh, not against course No, no, I don't think so. It, I think it's uh, less customary in, in matches than you are. Okay. You want to go, go back to, the, to prepare for the next game. And did you have people helping you for these matches? Oh yes, I had my my colleague Marky Peterson. He was my second, uh, my main second for the uh, during both of these matches, and also for the match against kostnoi The the impact of uh, of Fredrik Olsson was really very important. He came with me uh, to Canada as a head head of the delegation, and and you know he helped me kind of deal with. Uh, with Korsnoy, and, and Korsnoy for some reason uh, I think blamed blamed uh, Olafsson for his loss in the match. He, uh, it's a kind, kind of strange. Yeah, I, and I never really felt any personal animosity towards myself, but but they had a, also a long history because you may recall that Fredrik Olafsson was the president of FITA, the International Chess Federation between the years of 78 and 82, and some people say the last gentleman of FIDE. Uh, well, <laughs> I think we have a gentleman as a FIDE president finally again now in Mr. Dorkwitz But, uh, uh, yeah, when Friedrich was the, the FIDE president, he, he, he postponed the match which took place in Meran uh, 1981 uh, between Carpo and Kostner because uh, Kostner didn't... Get his family out of the Soviet Union. So, uh, so until that uh, matter was resolved, but uh, but he didn't pay Frederick much thanks for for that help. And 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 Friedrich, uh, uh, the the Russians, the Soviets turned away against him after after this event. So he was not re-elected in eighty two when when. Uh, Florencio Campomanis was elected FITA president, and we know that was the start of a rather, I think, bad era for the International Chess Federation, which yes. has now finally come to an end.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that, that you're optimistic about uh, Mr. Dvorkovich's, uh, um, uh I don't know how to say it, but that you feel that he'll do a good job.
1: Yes, I, I I hope so. I mean, he he is not clearly not in in, in chess to enrich himself like some others have yeah. done in the past. And you know, he 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 has a very good track record and everything he has done. And and for instance, uh, he was the, I think the chairman of the organizing committee for the for the World Soccer Cup last summer in Russia, which was. Uh, deemed as a a great success, so I'm I'm quite optimistic because chess really needs uh, you know uh, a, a better name for itself, and that is I mean the International Chess Federation to attract uh, you know sponsorship for real sponsors. Yeah, and Which the interest been-
0: the interest is there. I mean the the viewership numbers for this World Championship match, it's, from my perspective, has seemed great. So. I think with with better leadership uh, the sky's the limit.
1: Yes, absolutely and we know what happened with the last seat the president who was put on the on the sanctions list is maybe a a display of of the problems uh, that were around chess at the time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so Mr. Harterson, just one more topic if you don't mind. Um, so do you Obviously, being a lifelong resident of Iceland, I'm guessing you you came across Bobby Fischer at some points in his later years.
1: Oh yes, I did. Uh, I think I met him on on three occasions, and and um, uh, I have to admit that was a, a rather sad affair. Obviously, he was my my idol uh, for many many years, and and sometimes it's you know difficult when you meet your I yeah. call finally, and and obviously he was in extremely poor mental health, and and you really couldn't have a a, a a a normal conversation with him, but for a few minutes because he would always listen to this anti-Semitic ranting, which was really disturbing to listen to, and this conspiracy theory. So I took the conscious decision at some point that i i did not want to seek his uh, company i would rather keep him in my memory <laughs> for the great chess he, he played but it was uh, it was really sad to see the state in which he was
0: yeah well not, not surprising in the least but nonetheless as you say sad sad to hear um, yeah so. Yeah, I can never meet your heroes, as they say.
1: <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I guess so.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I am, I think that I have covered everything in my outline, although obviously, um, I, I've, so i'm so honored to to get your perspective um do you just one last thing if you have any stories that you feel just the chess world needs to hear from from your time on the road whether it be brushes with some of the people we've mentioned uh or you know legendary plays that we haven't like uh taman or kasparov or anyone along those lines uh it could be from a game or just you know from time away from the board do you have any any favorite chess stories
1: Okay, I'll tell you one story. Oh, great! About, uh, I was playing in the in the World Cup in 1989 in Barcelona, and and I would dine with my great colleagues every evening. And and one evening I sat with Boris Baski and and Lajos Portis, and you know. Spassky has a tremendously good sense of humor and mm-hmm. always telling jokes and really is not very serious whereas lios is more of a serious person and and thinking extremely well about his health and exercise and all that. And this is 89 and uh, a few years earlier, I think in 1986, we had, you remember this uh, disaster in in, 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 in you, the Ukraine where the Chernobyl mm-hmm. power plant yeah. blew up. And so I'm sitting with this Baski and Portis and, and uh, Portis is eating mushrooms. And then uh, Boris said to him, "Lios, you know, they are still radioactive. What do you mean? Well, mushrooms they they store radioactivity for years and and uh, portis obviously believed this and became completely red because thinking he was eating radioactive <laughs> m- mushrooms <laughs> so this is a typical boris basky so uh,
0: and he was just just making it up By of course <laughs> I he, was,
1: he was of course making it making it up but but you know to watch uh, liars turn completely red was kind of funny I, I thought I would tell you this silly silly story which has not much to do with chess.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. And uh, Boris Spassky, I think, there's, there's a lot of people I would love to have as a guest on the show. I've been lucky to have some incredible guests, but I think he could be the best guest of all because uh, Melik Katchian told an amazing story about drinking with Boris Spassky and GM Michael Rhodes told, told a story about him showing up for the New York Open in his tennis clothes and making a quick draw in order to go play tennis. So it just sounds like he, he had a, a perspective on life that I think our listeners would like to hear. So yeah. if, any, if anyone... Uh, you know your son set up this interview so if uh, if anyone close to Boris wants to put him in touch uh, I would be eternally grateful.
1: Yeah, I mean he he was a, a great personality who will leave a lasting mark on everyone who meets him obviously.
0: Yeah, and it's always rumored that he's writing memoirs. Do you have any inside information on this uh topic?
1: No, I'm afraid not. I, I actually met him in Berlin a few few years back and this was after he I think I had suffered a stroke or something and, and people were telling me that he was in bad health but he was uh, when I met him he, he was actually seemed to be in, in much better shape than I had expected so I I'm sure he is up to writing his memoirs
0: Oh, that would be incredible. Well, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, well, Johan, I just want to thank you again. Uh, I don't know. I always ask uh, guests if if they're open to being contacted by anyone listening, but if, if you would prefer to keep your information private, that's uh, perfectly understandable as well.
1: Yeah, okay. We'll see about that. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the Enjoy the playoff tomorrow. I mean, it's a uh, chess history before your eyes. So uh, should should be um, incredible to watch.
1: Yeah, certainly. I uh, it's uh, for me it's both exciting and a bit stressful at the same time.
0: Yeah, well, uh, because of your your role on the appeals committee. Yes. And do you do you have a rooting interest? I, I got. Oh yeah, you you wouldn't be able to say even if you did. So, uh, no. uh, we'll we'll scratch that question and just uh, let you go on and enjoy London before the big day tomorrow. So so again, thank you so much. This has been qu- quite a privilege.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. That includes my esteemed producer Matthew Passy and. Geert you, for supplying the intro music and everyone who's put in a good word for the show, whether it be on a podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or telling a friend or anything like that. As you guys know, I spend a lot of time on the show, probably about five hours a week between the research and the booking guests and the social media and the actual interview. I love doing it, but it can be hard to find the time. Which brings me to the financial support. I want to give special thanks to those who contribute to the show. Extra special thanks to Chessable.com for their generous support. And I also want to thank, as always, my Patreon and PayPal perpetual partners. You are Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Ali Morchetti, Andres Quisdwa, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Bill Moran, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Shabri, Chris Wood. I am Christoph Zulecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel D. Schaefer, Daniel Viney, e., David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith. I am elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis. Geert Vanderveld, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Augard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastria, Jason Willem, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovjutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyovsky, Leo Delgado, Lorraine Dore. Lucio Casada Silva Matthew Passi Macaulay Peterson Martin Habish, Matthew Tedesco Nate Sallen, Nathan Webster GM Pascal Charbonneau Passi Pasanen, Paul Sweeney Paulo Santana Peter Lux Peter Merrifield Randy Temple Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchak Robert Steiner Ryan Berg Ryan Sohn Steiner Lima Stuart Katz WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tchenko, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrinkulj, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. Catch you guys next week.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.